Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Hello and welcome to Political Football, the podcast that digs into the global political stories behind the sport. I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. And I'm Stephen Bush, special correspondent of The New Statesman. This is a special series focusing on the World Cup, which delves into the politics behind football. And we're joined today once again by our regular guest, John Bew, professor of history at King's London, professor of football, professor of foreign policy, and a professor of many other things. Welcome, professor. I'll start, well, this is, of course, on the eve of the World Cup semi-finals. Astonishingly, England are in the World Cup semi-final. It's the day after Boris Johnson resigned. The British government seems to be in chaos, Stephen, and we'll touch on that in a moment. But let's let's start with the England game, and then we'll talk about a little bit about Croatia, and we should then talk about France, Belgium. We'll talk about English nationalism, English patriotism, and whatever else. So, John Bew, how are you feeling about the semi-finals? Well, I think the English look strong. They've yet to be tested in a way that they were in the last Euros, which they struggled to come back from mortal wounds. Um, and they haven't actually seen any sort of... Um, they've always led in the games they won, notwithstanding the Belgian game, which was a kind of a weird suspended animation, I think, a, a kind of a not a dress rehearsal for a potential final. It was an odd game. Um, so the English haven't been fully tested in that respect. You say the first game they had to come, uh, you know, get those late goals to win the game. Um, so yet to see what what sort of what they're made of. But I also think on the more positive side than that, you can say the, the English team actually has another gear to step up to. And I think you've seen that in a, in a couple of the, the key games. I think Sterling's got a goal with, in him and I would keep him on the pitch. Um, I think Kane's got more from open play. Potentially, he's been a very effective um, hold-up player, a great captain during the tournament. But I, th- I think there's, 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 there's more in them. So I'm really intrigued to say, I think it's about a, it's a, they should have more than Croatia by the semi by the semifinals, but I, I, my my concern for them is that in the central midfield, where they only have essentially one conventional central midfielder in Jordan Henderson, they've they've designed a team around the assumption they will have more of the ball, uh, and therefore wanting to maintain attacking a threat, have attacking threat having Lingard and Deli Ali along with them. I, I think Rakitic and Modric will control the pace of the game, being the Barcelona and, and Modric uh, will sit deep, won't he, and sort of like almost like a American style quarterback dictating yeah, the rhythm of the game. He'll take the, he'll take the ball from the centre backs and play it around the 
pitch and he has had more touches in most of the games he's played than nearly every other player. Rakitic is also unbelievably effective at playing in tight spaces in a way that can, might look, make that Jordan Henderson look a little bit clunky. And I think England's natural high press game that's worked quite well may come up against two people who are supremely confident in the ball on the ball and can play at a tight places. So I think it'd be a different type of game. I still think overall English have the firepower. If you think of Harry Kane on Lovren, Dayan Lovren, for example, most cases in, in domestic games, in Spurs Liverpool games, he gives them a hell of a time. Um so I am Lovren really intrigued. was destroyed at a, a Spurs Liverpool game, wasn't he? And Klopp pulled him off. Do you remember he was humiliated against against Spurs? Exactly. He went at half time, I think. Yeah. Pulled him off even before half time. Stephen, have you been impressed by England? Yes, I have. I mean, I think, yeah, obviously player for player England, I think, are the weakest of the four remaining teams. On the other hand, of course, football is coming home. Um, <laughs> and it will, as John says, be a very different challenge for England because I think it will be a game in which they have less of the ball. Uh, I think that will be the first time this tournament. And actually, I think the first time in qualifying as well that uh, Southgate side has had to have uh, significantly less of the ball. Um, however, Croatia, for all their brilliance, have occasionally turned in some bizarre stinkers and have been very weak at set pieces which of course is one of the things this England side has been very strong at so I think it will be a, a very um, easy on the eye game even if it is one with a disappointing result and you've been um, a big defender of Raheem Sterling and um, you know he has a poor goal scoring record for England I think he's only ever scored two in more than 40 appearances but you've liked his commitment his energy his movement yeah his, his movement off the ball his pace is yeah he creates uh if you if you look at most of, of england's chances and, and goals he is involved either in the build-up or the or the finishing the problem you know so in the build-up or, or in in you know in the direct assist the problem is his finishing has has not been uh great i <clears throat> i'm not sure if that is, is that confidence do you think uh, my instinct is isn't um, if he'd got a goal late on against uh uh um, Panama, then maybe he would be scoring sort of freely with each time because I thought against um, Sweden that great goal, that great almost goal he created with his pace where he fluffed the finish and then it felt that every other time he had the ball in a one-on-one -on -one, it was almost as if you could hear him thinking gotta bury this, gotta bury this um, but I think he will become over you know coming is a great finisher as well uh, he is a, a, a wonderful kind of player playing playing as our as our 10 uh, and he is I think vital to um to the way England play and to how it creates chance how we create chances I do wonder if Southgate might seeing as we will have less of the ball opt to sacrifice one of Lingard or, or Sterling from the starting 11 to have a uh, Dyer and Henderson as a double pivot uh but to I, try and tr try and take on um, Rakitic and Modric in midfield, John. I don't think. Um, I mean, Croatia. They looked very good against Argentina when they when they thrashed the demoralised Argentinian side. But they've the last two games have gone to extra times and then penalties. Um, their forwards, in particular, have looked very heavy legged. They're okay at the back. Have a good goalkeeper. Of outstanding in midfield. I don't see a lot up front to worry us. Yeah, I mean, so they're a bit dependent on Mandzukic, who's, 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 who's a fading in his early 30s. Yeah. Um, I mean, he leads the line extremely effectively. He was very good at Bayern Munich and then he was replaced by Lewandowski. He went to Atletico Madrid. Um, where is he now? He's Juventus? also Juventus, yeah. So, I mean, he has pedigree to him and there was actually some talk at the start of the, which um, before the World Cup of him possibly coming to Manchester United as a kind of backup for Lukaku as well. He's a very difficult international player to play against. He reminds me of of, uh, Kuller, the Czech forward, yeah. that big, strong uh, yes. Czech Republic forward from a couple of years ago. And players play around him, but they have sort of been a little bit 
toothless. Um, and Perisic, don't they? Uh, Plays more wide on the left. So high, highly technical player. Yeah, conventional with, uh, wing back again. Someone that Mourinho liked very much. So the, you know, good technique, um, good consistent balls in the box from Perisic. Not a lot of chances, but again, how many chances of England created in open play? We talk about Raheem Sterling. He's created chances for himself. I completely agree uh, with Stephen. Lingard has chances in the first game. What I've liked about this Southgate side is the structure of the team. Um, by which I mean they have a system and they and they stick to it. And one, one thinks of the the chaos of um, late Roy Hodgson when he was just throwing on strikers and there was no for, formal structure to the team. But also set pieces. I mean, England look very... They remind me a little bit of George Graham's Arsenal at set pieces. They look extremely dangerous from set pieces where they line up in that, that sort of line of four and then spin into different positions. And Trippier's delivery has been terrific. And actually so has... Um, Ashley Young's from corners and free kicks. Yeah, I mean, that's a big, big feature of it. You, people can talk about the sophistication that Southgate has brought to the game. Actually, Roy Hodgson tried this sort of high press 4-3-3 in the last tournament and it, 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 I mean, it looked like it might work initially and, of course, didn't work and, and, and they fell down upon themselves. I mean, actually, conventional England team, the way that Harry Kames held up the ball, um, you know, basically grinding himself into corners, pushing off centre-backs in the last game of particular. Heroic, really impressive, but it's not some sort of fluid modern version of football. The fact that Harry Maguire is so big and strong and good in the air, uh, therefore creates space for John Stones, etc., etc. In some ways, you could say it's, it's it's a throwback to the thing that one would associate with English football. Although they're, although they're, they're at least attempting to pass it out of defence. You know, they're carrying they, they Stones, and Stones and Maguire, they're carrying out of defence. And they're not just hitting it long, Stephen, are they, as we have seen in the past from England, or indeed losing the ball very easily. Well, I think that, that to me, the, the, the moment when I kind of, and obviously I started this tournament in quite a pessimistic place about England's chances, the moment when I thought, oh, actually, I think this team is going to surprise me, and it obviously has because it's in the final four, was 1-1 against uh, Tunisia with 10 minutes to go. They didn't start hitting it long. They continued to stick to their system. The heartening thing against Sweden, where Sweden did a very good job, I thought that was actually, from a tactical perspective, it was a wonderful game to watch at first because they obviously played very high, prevented Pickford from playing out of the the box. And England did then find a way around uh, not being able to play in their their usual fashion, which does give me hope that against Croatia, when they have a different challenge of not having the ball, they will similarly find a way to adapt. On, on that one, on on the adaptability of the England team, I think Southgate will stick with the same team, um, and I, I can understand why. The, the way that Darwin Dyer came on in the Columbia game, partly because of the high intensity of the game, actually slowed it down a little bit, and I wonder how many successful changes Southgate has made over the course of the tournament. Rashford... In the first game, I think, you know, an injection of pace. Vardy also has been quite effective coming off the bench. Um, but, I you thought know, bringing Rashford on in extra time against the Colombians so that he could take a penalty was a decent move. That was a decent move, but I think they were treading water in, in extra time. He played Rashford as an eight. Um, Dyer started playing the ball back to a rather tired walker and stones. Um, so I, I, just in terms of adapting to Croatia having a lot of the ball, I don't know if there's a huge amount in terms of the options on the bench. It does, it does depend on, I think, primarily on Eric Dyer. Um, I don't know if I can see Eric Dyer getting that close to, to, to Rakitic and Modric as well. So that's another kind of open open question um, for English if they don't score, score from a corner or a free kick. Now, um, South, Southgate, rightly so, is being admired for his calm, his humility, his articulacy, different kind of language around the team. Are we overrating him, Stephen, or was it that our expectations were so low we're surprised when we encounter an England manager who isn't, say, Sam Allardyce? I mean, I think it, it's not just an expectations were low. Uh, I know I complained about this a bit, but one of the things he, he has brought is an understanding that 
then things aren't based on sort of luck, right? You know, penalty shootouts are not a lottery, right? They are a, a test of a footballer's technical ability. The way they prepared for it is they did it right at the end of training when they would all be tired, which of course is to sit and then and kind of trying to get them into a place where look, and now you need to do the thing you've done in training. And with the exception of Henderson's penalty, they were all penalties taken at a high technical level. Um, now, obviously, international football is different from the club game, so we don't have an idea of what he would do if he was in charge of transfers or anything. But I think he has shown himself to be a very skilled manager at a technical level, not least through the way he's protected his players um, and the fact they didn't freeze uh, against Sweden, faced with a challenge to how they set up tactically, faced with a game in which they were favourites, faced with a game with a very open uh, thing. So, yeah, I, I think uh, Southgate does deserve all of the plaudits he's getting. And John, last week in the New Statesman, I wrote a, a cover piece about England, English nationalism, patriotism, the English nation, the English football team, how the World Cup and Southgate's young, diverse team reawakened a sense of progressive English nationalism. And I've had a good good response to the piece. Do you, do you see some of these forces in play yeah, during th- this World Cup? I think we discussed it in one of the previous episodes, the fact that the England players were singing, all singing the national anthem was was a kind of an interesting thing. And it turns out it has transpired subsequently that, you know, Southgate did have a word with them, asked them why they didn't sing it. And, and, and you know, uh, most of them, you know, some of them didn't know the words, et cetera. So that does, it does tell you something about it. I think the pressure is slightly off in this tournament and expectations always go up. But, you know, if you really think back to the appointment of Southgate, it was kind of exasperation uh, after the Allardyce incident. That in itself was a bit of a, a nod to, you know, a, a sort of overbearing, pragmatic approach to football based on the fact that, you know, you've tried all these different things with Hodgson and Capello and Goran Eriks and nothing's worked. Give up on it. So so I don't think there's a master plan here. I mean, he's gone up in my estimation, but England really should have won all the games they what played the f- apart from the Belgium game. What about the game. forces this World Cup summer has unlocked? or unleashed do you see something optimistic about Englishness a possible awakening or reawakening or redefinition of Englishness I'm really optimistic about all those things in general I wouldn't overplay the World Cup on this actually you know even people talk about the Brexit referendum you know I think it's actually remarkably genteel by international standards notwithstanding you know some some issues with it um, I, I'm not sure England, English, English football team has tr- transformed that in any significant way um, but you know well, you're it, Northern Irishman but you're also British do you do you understand the tensions between Englishness and Britishness, a sense of English nationalism rising because of Scottish nationalism? Yeah, you know, I, I think actually this England team is more l- likeable for those in the Celtic fringes. I think if you have a kind of Lampard, Beckham, you know, Terry. big club team, um, that you know, the Scots in particular sort of, you know, I, I mean, I doubt that, you know, in Glasgow, there's everyone will have their Croatia football kits on it. But I, I don't think it's the same sort of sense of hostility. Um, it is more of a likeable team. They're less, you know, cocksure, self-confident. Um, they're less similar symbols of kind of Premier League dynasties. Um, you know, there's a couple of exceptions like Sterling's at City, etc. So, but, you know, Harry Kane plays for, you know, plays for Tottenham Hotspur. Yeah, but also, is- Stephen, a lot of these players have either been at smaller clubs and have worked their way up to bigger clubs or they were at bigger clubs and couldn't, couldn't get a game and therefore went out on loan. Kane was at, what, Leicester, Norwich... Um, Trippier, one. Trippier, Pickford was always being sent out on loan... Maguire was, was at Hull City, Delft was at Leeds, you know, once great club, but, but no longer. Is, has that played a part, do you think? 
No, I think it probably plays a part in their essential likability in that they they don't have that kind of... They, these aren't... Uh, they aren't a generation of players who've been told since they were 15 in the academy that they were going to be uh, great stars. I think it's interesting how the England player of that cohort, who in many ways as a raw talent ought to be England's greatest central midfielder, but seems to have decided to take the money and go to West Ham rather than try and uh, strike a new career for himself at AC Milan somewhere, is Jack Wilshere, right? The only one of the of this set of England players who who did come in with a kind of sense of of his greatness in the academy. You know, even Lingard, uh, a hugely technically accomplished player because of his height, did have to kind of fight his way up through the uh, the United Academy. I mean, I think I think the thing about um, kind of an, a renaissance of or for progressive Englishness is I think the thing about uh, the success of the England team is because it's, uh, it is unifying and it gives everyone something to cheer about, it creates space for a a more sort of left-wing national revival because obviously the right does best when it can sharply uh, narrow down what Englishness or Britishness is you know, to, to define it as only leavers or only, you know, hard-working families or et cetera, et cetera. Because every, when, when everyone cheers for the England team and the England team is doing well, it then I think creates space for the left to do, you know, some of the quite opportunistic and clever retail policies that Labour has been doing, so them re-announcing their bank holiday uh, uh, policy essentially every time England advances in the tournament, which is a good way of them subtly kind of putting their hands up and going, we're here and we're vaguely into into the nation. But I think mainly, of course, it, it is about giving something everyone to cheer for, which of course is the interesting thing about Croatia, who of course were not a nation the last time England were in uh, a semi-final. Uh, their first president famously said that sport along with war was the thing which most distinct distinguished a nation uh, and it's sort of how Croatia's success yeah they they like England yeah the fascinating thing about this side of the bracket is you have two semi-finalists who have outperformed expectations at home uh, however you have a Croatia side who will be sitting there and this is our last chance and although I suspect this will be the easiest route on paper than this generation of England players ever faced to a final they will be better in the next, you know, they, they can also expect to be a better team in coming tournaments. Whereas Croatia, I think, will have uh, more, yeah, we'll know this is the last chance for that set of players. Because and Modric other- is in, he, the great, the great, great Modric, one of my favourite players, he's in his, in his 30s. 32. Yeah. Interesting comment about, um, Stephen made about Croatian nationalism and very the football team has always been a great symbol of the new Croatian nation that emerged out of the ruins of Yugoslavia and the brutal and bitter um, Balkan Wars. There was a famous match, I think, in 1994 when the, the newly independent Croatia, the Croatian football team, went to Italy and Italy had lost in the World Cup final and were a very good Italian side. And Croatia, Croatia arrived in Palermo, I think it was, led by Suka and Boxic and Boban, you know, that fantastic generation of players. And they destroyed Italy. It was a, it was a famous victory. And Croatia look back on this this as a key moment in their independence as a nation and as a football team. And I remember the Italian manager at the same saying they they thought they were not only taking on a football team, they were taking on a whole people. So Croatia are very dangerous opponents for many reasons for England. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And if you think of that, that Suko, who's been very nice about the England team, by the way, and particularly about Jesse Lingard and other, a couple of players, and he's in sort of, you know, he's such an effective technical striker. And a lot of them played in Italy as well. That, that, that sort yeah, of I think that generation. Suko played. Did he not play for both Real Madrid and Barcelona? Uh, yeah. And very fleetingly, Arsenal. And Boban was at uh, AC Milan. AC Milan. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that, that, so actually, that's why I think the idea that this is a kind of, this is the golden generation that, that you know, may not do it again is potentially problem, you know, problematic. I think the, the point of it, the distinguishing characteristic of those Croatia teams is unbelievable technical ability um, in an age of running very fast, you know, uh, and, and be, being more fit than the other team seems to be sort of preeminent. Um, so, I mean, I, I think they're a really dangerous uh, opponent. I think winning two penalty shootouts, sort of dragging yourself through those games, notwithstanding the fact they survived the last... Um, the, the, you know the last gas Russian equaliser as well. Um, I, I I would be deeply concerned. They are they are the hardest team that England have faced, um, and I think they're the they're a better team than the Belgian B side that England yeah. got beaten by. Um, Although in the that last was group that game was that was England B, B as well. Um, but I think they're they're a really tough opponent. You're not at the stage of the World Cup where you have to beat some serious teams, and and, and I think you know. But that I, is good, isn't it? You don't want you don't want to come home from the World Cup just being told you were lucky. You want to, you want, if England is to win this tournament, they now have to beat a, an exceptionally gifted Croatian side and then one of Belgium and France. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Now, you're both with me here. Stephen, at the beginning of the tournament, you tipped the French, although last week, I think it was, you then switched to Croatia. John tipped the French from the beginning. Our other guest, Ali McGovern, tipped Belgium, still in the tournament. David Winner's Spain went. I can now reveal my tip was very predictably Brazil, and they've gone, so I'm I'm out. France, John, have you been impressed? Uh, yeah, I also think as to what I said about England, France definitely have another gear uh, in terms of the strengths of their bench. The fact that you know Griezmann's been sort of buzzing around the edges, he hasn't quite exploded into action. Uh, Pogba, I think he's had a really good World Cup um, so far. And the, the, if you have Kante beside him, he's liberated in the way he plays for France. In a way, he, sadly, as a Manchester United fan, I haven't, I haven't seen yet. Um, uh, you know, I, I think the French are really good. They've Rafa Varane at the back. I think Lloris is a wonderful goalkeeper. Um, that I think I still think they're the toughest. I think they're a better team than Belgium. I think they'll beat Belgium, and I think that they're, they're, they're the hardest team to play against. They're not dependent on any sort of old players. They have a system where they can play Olivier Giroud up front, who may not be the best technically, but he works for that French team. Um, you know, they know what they're about. They know their identity, and I say that I think you know, for to my mind, they're still by far and away the strongest team. And they have fantastic options from the best. 
bench, you know, someone like Dembele, who's now at Barcelona, can come on and transform a game. Stephen, are you going to switch back to France? I mean, I, I half want to, but I also feel having switched once, I should I should stick stick with stick with Croatia. Um, <laughs> I think so. France are are definitely player for player, and in terms of their you know their quality on are are the best team. I think the slightly the nice thing about this World Cup is there is no longer a team that I would be upset to see lift it. Although because of France's quality, in some ways it would be a almost they're, they're the only aristocrat left in the tournament. Ironically, considering uh, France's history, but um, so it'll be a disappointment in an odd way for such a great team for a sort of. A big team to win it after after the kind of wonderful topsy turvy tournament, but I do think Belgium, for all their quality against Brazil, uh, Hazard's selfishness and and led to so many counters when he had opportunities to pass it easily for a third goal. Uh, and I think then against France, they will probably be punished for their slightly odd lopsidedness. Um, and their coaching deficiencies. Martinez, Stephen, who we criticised in one of the earlier programmes, you know, obviously believes in himself as a kind of tactical genius. I mean, he very he has a high self-regard, which alienated a lot of the Everton players when he was there. But that tactical switch against Brazil, and I've seen him do it before once against Arsenal, when he played Lukaku sort of wide right. In this instance, he played Hazard wide left. And the brilliant Kevin De Bruyne was almost like a false nine or attacking from advanced positions in midfield. Did you admire what Martinez pulled off against? What well, actually, let's be honest, not a great Brazilian team. Yeah, I mean, I, I think with the exception, perhaps, of Fernandino, I actually thought this was an all right Brazilian side. But um, he is very good at, at mid-game tweaks. Uh, the problem is often with Martinez is the reason why he he gets to demonstrate that he's good at mid-game tweaks is he's not that great at setting <laughs> up a team at minute zero uh, and against a team of the quality of France, right? So Japan is a great example, right? That he made some good mid-game tweaks in that game. But ultimately, uh, if France race into a two-goal lead of that type, I do not think France are going to lose 3-2 at the death from a a, a brilliant uh, bit of a kind of almost non-assist assist from Lukaku. I think that as my moment of the tournament, just the the brilliance of him not touching the ball was, there in yeah, that yeah. that moment. I, I I've watched it several times. It's just such a and he's going so fast and he has to decide so quickly not to touch it. Lukaku, I think, fits in with a kind of wider pattern of this tournament. Pogba, of course, is another of uh, United players flourishing away from the the kind of controlling shackles of Mourinho uh, and his ultra defensive approach to football. John, you you were also very critical of Martinez. I mean, apart from the Spain-Portugal 3-3, which I think was the second day of the tournament, Belgium would have been involved in two of my favourite games. The brilliant 2-3 match against Japan that Stephen just mentioned, and of course the the victory against Brazil. I mean, can they? Can they? Can they? Yeah, they have they have momentum. Um, they've got a bit of a story. I mean, he has, has to change the team with like breaking the structure thereof. The one we haven't mentioned, who was pretty dangerous against Brazil, was Fellaini. Another Manchester um, United. Another Manchester. You know, but but again, Mourinho's ultimate blunt instrument, which you know uh, Martinez has not been afraid to use. And there's plenty of people who thought Nangalan should have gone in the World Cup squad ahead of Fellaini. Uh, so I give him credit for not being such a purist that he doesn't use a very effective blunt instrument. Um, yeah, I think Belgium can do it. De Bruyne has the 
bit between his teeth gliding across the pitch. He's been really effective. I think if France scores first, I think that's very... I mean, Belgium, of course, have come have made that wonderful comeback against Japan. Uh, I just think the French are extremely dangerous when they have a lead and, and, and the, the threat of Mbappe and the pace they have is, is what could upset them. But absolutely, Belgium could do it. But here's my question, you know, back to you both. Who, who do you rather play in the final, presuming England beats Croatia? It, would, it, would it be France or Belgium? I think I'd rather face um, Belgium, Stephen. Well, France are the best team in the tournament. So from a kind of winning perspective, you'd rather not face the best team in the tournament. But I think if if England are going to win the World Cup, it would be wonderful to knock out one of the, the, the tournament's true great, right? In the same way, Italy in 2006, I think quite similar to this England team, not the best team in the tournament on paper. Yes, they had a fortunate draw, but they took every chance they were given and they 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 were deserved winners of that. And they beat the and German they, side they in beat, that famous semi final yeah, in Dortmund. Yeah, two, and, two and they they beat a very strong uh, France side with Henri at the peak of his powers, Zidane at the end of his uh, his career, but still an amazing footballer. Uh, and they they beat them on penalties. And I think yeah, if, in terms of who I would rather England face in the final, I would rather beat the best. These are heady times um, watching England, John. Are you? Do you think it's the hot weather? the optimism of the World Cup, because politically it's dark, isn't it, here? Uh, it's crazy times, right? Um, <laughs> let's see what happens if England wins the World Cup. Yeah, I mean, it's always very exciting when England do well in the World Cup. There's something quite of a nice mood, notwithstanding the occasional throwing of plastic chairs and the invasion of Ikea, which we can kind of turn a blind eye to. And another context could have gone, you know, rather ugly. Um, yeah, I mean, domestically we are <laughs> in interesting times. Um uh, across the piece. I don't know if it's dark times. I think things have actually gone, I was saying to Stephen before we started, quite glacially, even by the standards of the last couple of years. And there's, we've we've moved a few obelisks around from place to place. I think I was thinking of dark times because of the arrival on Thursday of the absurd figure of Don, Donald Donald um, Trump in, in Britain. Uh, oh, of course, as well. Yeah, yeah. The, yeah, the, the wider, the, the sort of deeper geopolitical scene. But we won't. We let's not get. Let's not. Let's not get gloomy. Let's not bring Trump into our into our podcast. Um, Stephen, what about Russia? At the start of the tournament, there were great anxieties about having this great tournament in an authoritarian state. How Putin might use it? Is the is the skill of Putin rather than to have turned it into a kind of grotesque display of um, propaganda and, and Russian nationalism as to, is to have made Russia appear like a normal country. Yeah, I mean, he, he had, you know, as you kind of expect with, with any managed democracy, they have managed to put a, a, a good show on if they've had some protests about pensions away from World Cup cities and have not been uh, the subject of the level of repression that one would uh, usually expect. Yeah, I mean, to reiterate my feelings on it on the start of the the tournament, I, I think you know Russia are a great footballing nation. I am a lot I am a lot more relaxed about Russia hosting this tournament than the the. I mean, people have lost their lives because of the decision to allow Qatar to to host the uh, the twenty twenty two World Cup, uh, and I think that you mean is, the construction uh, the construction workers. workers. Yeah. I think that's a much more grim uh, tournament. Uh, and of course, it has. It is always good for the tournament if the host country does well. Uh, that is not the only reason why 2010 was not a very good World Cup, but it contributed to 2010 being a disappointing World Cup. Uh, it made 2014 more fun than Brazil uh, went quite far, but also their 
disintegration was quite amusing. Um, and it, it has been good than Russia have, have got so far, even though it is, of course, slightly remarkable than the worst-ranked team in the tournament. 36-year-old strikers have been playing with quite such uh, ability. The but running you know, stats are very good. Extraordinary yeah. energy. Let's perhaps not go there, but I understand the implication. John, it's been a wonderful World Cup, hasn't it? It's been the best World Cup I can remember. And I, I think in our first podcast, I talked about 1990 being a bit starry-eyed about that. But actually, people said it was quite a defensive World Cup, quite sort of tactically dull. And even I remember Scalacci scoring these great goals, but that was not an exciting Italy team. I think it's been, the, it's, it's been the best World Cup in my lifetime, mainly, first of all, because of the football. Secondly, because of the stadia. Actually, they've been excellent. Um and, you know, I don't think that reflects anything on, on Putin or Putin's Russia. I don't think he can take credit for it. Actually, he hasn't been around that much. No. Um, the Russian coach there, said he was receiving phone calls from him before each game and then after each game. But he hasn't been, he hasn't been, I think he was there for the first game against the Saudis. But it has been clearly well organised. The atmosphere inside the stadiums is good. There's been no hooliganism. As far as I know from London, there's been no overt racism that many of us feared. Um, a lot of England fans stayed away because they, they 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 were fearful that they were going to get beaten up. Um, the football's been open, exciting. Um, obviously, England have had a good run to the semi-finals, but so there are good teams left in the tournament. Dare I ask for your prediction, Stephen, for the semi-finals? Um, Do you want to have a go? I think it will be uh, France Croatia in the in the final. It will be a repeat of the nineteen ninety eight semi-final. It'll be France, England, and then anything Tibet in the final. Yeah, I think it'll be England-France final. And this is the penultimate World Cup podcast, but we will return um, once the final's been played. So we'll do the next podcast on a Monday. John will be back, but we're going to get Helen Thompson in from um, Talking Politics, which is a podcast we like very much. And we'll see where we are next week. Thank you again to my co-presenter, Stephen Bush, and thank you to our special guest, John Bew. You've been listening to Political Football, and I'm Jason Cowley, editor of The New Statesman. Thanks for listening to Political Football. We'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, you can send us your questions and comments for future episodes via Twitter. I'm on at Stephen KB, and Jason is at Jason Cowley NS. 